Hi, so good to see you here uh, with us at Everyday Church uh, Online. I'm Andy. It's wonderful to be with you and wonderful to be with you wherever you are in the world um, watching this. Uh, We know that we have a a global audience on our online venue and and we love that. Uh, A few special hellos, uh, one of which is to a member of my life group who is usually, well, usually lives here in Wimbledon, but is on holiday in South Africa. She's gone back home to see uh, her family there. So hello, Anami, if uh, you said you'll be watching watching this, so uh, let me know how this goes. Um, uh, hello as well to BJ in Nepal, who joins us at our 8 a.m. prayer meetings. Mate, it's really good to be able to pray with you. I um, hope you're doing well. And also, I want to give a special mention if you're watching from the Philippines as well. Um, we you know we got whole, we got thousands of people watching, uh, watching this uh, from the Philippines, so a particular uh, warm welcome to this service today uh, for you. Now, uh, today we're uh, jumping back into our series in John. I know we haven't really left John in going through, our, uh, our going through Easter, so we took a, a, um, we took a brief pause to go out of our sequence in John, and we looked at John 12 and John 20, so the triumphal entry for Palm Sunday and the resurrection in John 20 for Easter, Easter Sunday and that week. I know then Simon's uh, just preached a vision message uh, for us. So we've had three weeks out of our sequence, going through John's gospel where I've been following through chapter by chapter. So before I get into the end of chapter four and the beginning of chapter five today, I'm just going to briefly catch us up on where we are so far because uh, uh, that gap is, uh, is, can be a long time. So um, let's, uh, let me just catch us up with what we've been looking through John so far. So we started with John 1, which starts with this wonderful prologue. Um, John there talks about the word becoming flesh and making his dwelling amongst us. That the, the word is Jesus, and John is talking about the incarnation, this moment when the divine steps down into humanity, into our world, into our mess. We see the light of the world stepping into darkness, life coming to confront death. Um, and uh, the rest of chapter one moves into looking at John the Baptist, who is paving the way for Jesus's uh, ministry. We see the calling of the first uh, disciples as Jesus starts his, uh, his ministry and is calling followers to himself. In John two, we saw the first sign, the first miracle that John draws our attention to, which is Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding. Uh, John chapter 2 concludes with Jesus clearing the temple and this prophecy that Jesus says, uh, you know, if you tear down this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. And John has this little note saying, oh, Jesus is actually talking about his own body. And having looked at Easter and uh, looking at um, the resurrection, we know that to be true. What Jesus said there was fulfilled. John 3 is a marvellous chapter. We saw Jesus encountering Nicodemus and that uh, most famous of verses in the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Uh, We heard about John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus again where John is basically saying, don't look to me, I'm, I'm not the guy. Jesus is the guy, less of me, more of him. And then uh, John 4, we saw Jesus journeying through Samaria where he meets the woman at the well. 
and has this wonderful encounter with her, which we see him healing and restoring this woman enough that she runs into this town where she felt shame and rejection to call people to come and meet Jesus. And Jesus stays there for a couple of days and uh, I imagine they had a wonderful time, Jesus and his disciples there ministering um, to that crowd as the town responds um, to this message. Now our passage today starts where we left Jesus and the gang. So they have been in Samaria for a couple of days and they are just arriving into Galilee following being in Samaria. Now our passage today includes the second and third signs. So if the first sign was Jesus turning water into wine, our passage today includes the second. We're explicitly told about the second. And then the third is this, uh, uh, the miracle um, that follows it. Now the, the first sign that we get, the water into wine, in John 2 verse 11, we're told that these signs are given that they would reveal the glory of Jesus. Uh, they are signs because they are pointing towards Jesus. And just like there are seven I am sayings in John's gospel, we would typically say that there are seven signs in John's gospel. So we're going to hit these regularly as we go through uh, this, uh, this gospel. Uh, today we're looking at these second and third signs and we can look at them to see, okay, how do they point us towards Jesus? What do they tell us um, about him? Now our passage today ends with uh, John 5 verse 16 where we see a change in response to Jesus. We see a, a ramping up of opposition. It's the, the first indication that we get of the Pharisees going, sorry, who's this Jesus guy? You know, what, what's he doing? That their critical gaze is focused on him as he's doing some marvelous and wonderful and new things. So the, these two miracles, particularly the second one, ends in increased opposition. And this is the first sort of sign of opposition that we get in, um, in John's gospel. And we know that that continues to ramp up all the way until Easter, um, and, and we know the events there where the Pharisees have enough of Jesus where they say, look, we need to kill this guy, and they do. So we saw that um, a couple of weeks ago. But let's take each of these encounters with Jesus in turn. Today we have two miracles, as I say, the second sign and the third sign. Uh, we're going to look at both of these uh, in turn. Let, let me read the first, uh, the first one to you. So this is the second sign, um, and it's in John 4, 46 to 54. Uh, I'll read the, this chunk through, and then let's, uh, let, let's review um, and, and talk through these verses together. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee where he had turned the water into wine. There was a, a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on his way, um, that his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believe, believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. 
th- th- I mean, this is a marvelous story, isn't it? Uh, Jesus encountering uh, a, a man who's uh, desperate, comes and begs him for a miracle, uh, and we see one. There's a few wonderful details um, about this story, which I think gives it such credence as, a, um, as an event that really happened. And it's sort of these little eyewitness details that we, uh, that we get that makes us think, yeah, this is, this is a genuine account. This really uh, happened. Uh, one of which is talking about this guy coming from, um, coming from Capernaum to see Jesus's, Jesus in Galilee and the travel times um, between the two. So it's about 20 miles away. Uh, so Capernaum to, to Cana, uh, you'll be able to see it on, on the map um, there. And it would have required an overnight stay for this walk to have happened. So this guy setting out to find, uh, to find Jesus, he would have stayed overnight somewhere, bumped into Jesus, well, encountered Jesus, uh, asked, uh, had this encounter, and then we see him returning and the next day bumping into servants coming, uh, coming the, the other way. And this is a marvelous miracle. That This second sign builds on the first Where we saw in the first one this mastery over inanimate forces of nature, so changing water into wine. This second sign we see a mastery over personal afflictions, and in this case, this official's son who was laying sick. Now let's just enter into this story for a moment. Verses 46 to 47 tell us that there was this certain royal official whose sons lay sick. Now this royal official, we don't know his name. Um, We don't know his station within within the royal household, but he would have been serving the king king at the time, King Herod, um, who was ruling over Judea in that time. And we see his concern for his son here. We, we, we know that this man is a man of means. He, he's got several servants, not only that travel with him to see Jesus, but also meet him on, on the way. We, we know he's a man of means, so we can, um, we can deduce then that he would have asked doctors. You know, he, he would have looked at a whole bunch of different solutions to, how, you need to help my son. This desperation that we get from him all the way through the story, the the length of his journey and sort of the darkest hour of his son's journey, you almost get the sense that he left home expecting never to see his son again. He he was going with one one last hope. You can almost imagine him leaving the rest of his family then begging him to stay. He's going, no, there's one more more option. I'm going to go see Jesus. And we see that when he finds Jesus and meets him in verse 47, he went to him and begged him begged him. Now, that, that, that's a word of desperation, isn't it? In my mind, it conjures, conjures someone on their knees, groveling, pleading, praying. There's heartbreak to this man's circumstances. And I think many of us will be able to identify with this man's circumstances. If any of you have had, had a loved one go through suffering, and the helplessness that you can feel in being unable to help them as they lie sick, maybe even as they lie dying, maybe if you've seen one of your loved ones die. Man, the concern that we can carry, this begging feels completely appropriate, doesn't it? That The help that you want to, would you please help my loved one? And we see it in this man. And I wonder whether it's worth pausing even just here, just to pray briefly. Like if you're listening to this sermon and you have a loved one who is in dire straits like this, this story will be full of emotion for you. So let me just pray really quickly for you. 
Father, I, I don't know who will be watching this sermon, but I thank you that you do. And Father, thank you that you see them and their circumstances. And Father, I want to pray for your, your peace right now. I want to pray your peace for those watching who are in uh, desperate circumstances, that they would know your presence with them. And Father, I ask that they would also know your provision. Father, would you bring your healing? Would you bring your comfort? In Jesus' name, amen. And so into this desperate circumstance, this man begging, I, I wonder whether as you read Jesus' words in verse 48, they, they, they feel a bit harsh? Because this man coming and begging, he then says, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. And it can feel a bit harsh, doesn't it? This, this is a teaching moment from Jesus. He is teaching this man and teaching us something about the nature of faith, about prayer, and we'll get to those. But, but here it, it can feel a bit like, Jesus, you, you, you've mismatched. Now it's important to know that Jesus will show compassion. He does show compassion. Just, just in fact, a sentence later, you know, just a couple of verses later, that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. And so, so here Jesus is talking about demands for proof that people bring, or demands of proof for, uh, for faith. And that's, that's what he's talking about. He's wrestling with this nature of true faith. It's a teaching moment, it's not a dismissal. He doesn't dismiss the man with this. I, I think there's, um, there's something of this, there's, there's a common theme that um, John will, will teach on this several times through his gospel. And actually, we, we explored something of this um, in, uh, on, uh, on the Sermon on Resurrection Sunday. So John 20, verse 29, when um, Jesus is talking to Thomas, and where he says to them, Look, it's, it's, better if, it's better if you believe without seeing. Better if you believe with, without seeing. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. And when he does that, it, when he, Jesus teaches this, you see it drawing out this prayer from this, this official. Verse 49 says, Sir, come down before my child dies. Now this is a, this is a passionate prayer. Um, I suppose if we were gonna think of uh, like a perfect prayer or a formula for prayer, this one doesn't really fit those descriptions. You know, we, we, we might have in, in pattern, oh, you need to address uh, God rightly. You know, this official is, is not doing that. This is, more, this is more of a plea. But healing is released because of this. You know, in the next verse, Jesus says, go, your son will live. Jesus sees this man's faith and, and responds. And even with this man's limited understanding, that there's, there's grace. This guy didn't have all of the, you know, the theological knowledge, didn't, didn't, have, you know, didn't have everything lined up correctly, didn't pray maybe with right words. This was just a passionate plea. Come before my child dies. That's what elicits a response from God. It's wonderful. He, he loves it when we engage him with our hearts. And comforting to know, I think, that we can approach prayer in the same way, passionately and honestly. Uh, we, we don't need to perform before God when we come before him in prayer. We can ask him for the things that are on our hearts and he responds to us. I say Jesus' response to this man's plea is, go, your son will live. 
And so the official heads home. And so he meets these servants and he is, finds to his immense relief that his son has been healed. And this is wonderful because it shows that Jesus, it shows Jesus' power, doesn't it? It shows that his word is enough. At his word, this, this son uh, was healed. It's, it's wonderful because it shows us that there's, again, no pattern or routine or ritual for approaching God for healing. It's, it's coming to Jesus and asking him for it. And I love how this story emphasizes faith over transaction. We, we can often approach our relationship with God too transactionally. We can approach God, we can have him in mind as someone who's almost maybe a bit more of a, a genie, sort of, you know, a, a wish giver, you know, someone that you can ask something of and he'll give something to you. But, but we see here that Jesus, Jesus wants our hearts you know, he's, he's looking for faith and for trust and for belief. Prayer does not mean um, bargaining. Do you know, sort of the, uh, God, if you give me this, then I'll believe you or I'll, I'll give you this. Uh, maybe you've seen uh, a movie. I know there's, there's lots of movies over here which help, often will have a moment like this, you know, that someone's in the direst of straits and they'll pray something like, God, if you do this, for me, then I will serve you with the rest of my life. Are you familiar with the moment like that? And I wonder that, whether that's how we can approach prayer. And it's odd, isn't it? Because if we, if we encounter people like that, who only come to us because they're interested in getting something out of us, or if you've got kids, imagine your kids only come to you when they want something. And you're like, there's so much more on offer in terms of a relationship that we can have together. This isn't just transactional. I don't just give you things. I delight to give you things, but actually there's something, there's so much more. There's a, there's a depth to knowing each other. And I think there's an important lesson for us here that, that faith is not based on signs and miracles. And you know, we can't dictate terms to God. We, we exist for him, not him for us. This official was a model for us. There's a progression through this passage that he goes. We see in verse 48, he is seeking Jesus. He goes to find him. Verse 50, we see him taking Jesus at his word. And verse 53, we see him believing, him and his whole household. I love, I love this progression and it, and it feels like exactly what we should see when we see someone like Jesus stepping into this world. When we see life coming and stepping into a dying world, healings like this are to be expected. But, but this is John reminding us of Jesus' purpose, his deep purpose. That by believing that we may have life in Jesus' name. There is something far greater at stake than our physical well-being. God is after the whole of us. And this is the theme that is drawn out in our next story too. So let's touch on that very quickly. Let me read these verses to you. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And the one who, uh, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. 
When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who was this fellow who told you to pick up, uh, pick it up and walk? The man who was healed has no idea who it was for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later Jesus found him at the temple and said, see, you are well again, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that this was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. Uh, now we're, we're going to dig into this story uh, more next week as well. Uh, we're sort of cutting off halfway through a narrative and, excuse me, we see Jesus uh, teach more on this, on this then. So that we'll, we will get to, to more of this next week, but there's plenty to explore for today as well. Now there's lots of questions in this passage that we don't really have answers for and alas, time for. Things like, what causes the stirring in this water? This uh, disabled man talks about, oh, when there's this stirring in the water, people jump in and they're, they're healed. What? That, that's the question. And we're not, we're not really told. We're not, we don't really know why Jesus walked into this place where there were loads of people who needed healing and singles out one man for it. We, we, don't, we don't know. There is a question here as well around verse, verse four. If you're following in the Bibles, you may see that your Bible jumps from verse three to verse five. Um, there's sort of a verse four in, in the footnotes. Now, this is interesting because um, it, can, it can feel as if this undermines our faith in Scripture a little bit because here is a verse that we're like, well, should we have it in it? Should we not? Uh, you, you'll see the note at the bottom of your Bible. would say like, um, something like, you know, the earliest manuscripts don't have this verse in. And, and so what it appears to be is that verse four is a later edition from someone who um, thought, oh, there, there's a little more detail needed here. I mean, perhaps it was someone just scrolling in a note of saying, oh, this is, this is something I found out. This, you know, the, this is what their belief was, that an angel was stirring the water at that time. And then that was copied and someone actually put it into the text. But to be honest, I, I find that this fuels my confidence for scripture rather than detracts from it. One of the wonderful things about scripture and these eyewitness accounts is that they spread so quickly. Do you know the, the, the written word, there, there were thousands and thousands of copies, many of which we, we, we still have, which means that we can spot later editions, just, just like verse four. Uh, we, we, we've got another one coming up in, in John's gospel. We'll, we'll see it later, sort of um, uh, John, John seven, John eight. But, but here, this can give us real confidence, actually, that when we read and we don't have these little notes of ah, oh, some manuscripts don't have this, actually it can give us confidence that what we're reading are the original words that are written because there are so many copies. So, so I love that. But anyway, back to, back to the story. The, the Pharisees clearly have a real issue with this healing. This is what causes uh, so much opposition against Jesus. And it's all around breaking of the Sabbath. Now, now the Sabbath goes back to Genesis. 
Um, it's also enshrined in, in, in the Ten Commandments, in, in the law. Uh, back in Genesis, it's there when God creates the world in six days and then rests on the seventh. And, and it talks about there giving us a pattern to follow as well, that we too would rest on the seventh day because it's holy because God rested then too. This is what's picked up in the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 verse 8 again talks about the Sabbath being for us to set aside it as, as holy. And it talks about there of not doing work on the Sabbath. Now this, this is an essential rhythm for our own lives in the 21st century. This isn't just some ancient practice that we've grown out of. No, no. Our busy 21st century lives have, if anything, shown the importance of rest like this. But it's interesting to note that the Pharisees are picking up on Sabbath breaking, but that we see that they've technically got it wrong. <laughs> they've added something to the law here, which means that they are saying Jesus is a Sabbath breaker. Because we know that the Sabbath talks about not doing work. It, it actually is more talking about not doing your job on the Sabbath rather than not doing anything that's considered as work. That's kind of like an added layer that we can, we can bring to it. So Jesus is not guilty of breaking the Sabbath here. No, he's, he is still honoring it, but he's doing good and compassion, uh, showing compassion to this man on this day. Now, after this wonderful miracle, Jesus coming and uh, saying to this guy, hey, take up your mat and walk, and this guy um, getting up and walking, we, we're told in verse 14, verse 14 that Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Again, this can be a hard verse in our, in our ears. There's something worse here is God's judgment. And, and, and Jesus here is linking our sin with God's judgment. Our, our, our sin is this, the selfish things that we do, either to ignore God or to harm others or um, to worship ourselves or, or other things. And Jesus is saying here, you need to leave that sin behind or you face God's judgment. Now this is, this is sobering. Now it is worth noting that um, in John 9, another miracle that we'll get to, Jesus breaks the link between sin and suffering. So it's not the necessary cause. It's not you are suffering, therefore you must have sinned. But we can deduce from this verse 14 that, that we can say enough that it could be the cause. That sometimes sin does lead to suffering in our, in our lives. It's not necessarily the cause, but it, but it could be. But this verse is a sign that this man is not coming off well in this story especially when we compare him to others who are healed, who usually rejoice or respond in some way. Think of the official, we're given the detail that he and his whole household believed. The, the detail after the healing for this man is Jesus warns him, stop sinning or you face judgment. It, it seems that this guy did receive healing from Jesus and didn't believe. He's not not calling out to Jesus in the same way. There's, there's no plea that we in, see in, in this story. Now those details perhaps are just missing. It, it might be that John is just not including them for us. You know, there's just not space for it. But it, but it does feel like this, this man is ungrateful. He, d he doesn't come across well from this story, at least how, how it's written. And yet what I love about even that detail is it's a wonderful, powerful reminder that God's grace is for all of us. It really does reach out for all of us. This seemingly ungrateful man, God's grace was there for him. 
called him out of a crowd and healed him. This sober warning, we, we don't know if this, this man responded to Jesus' call to stop sinning. I, I, I hope, he, hope he did. I hope he did stop sinning and turn and believe in, in Jesus. It's a wonderful reminder for us that God's grace comes for all of us. And so for today, here we have these, these two signs, both of them pointing us towards Jesus, both revealing his compassion for us, both revealing his grace for us, both revealing his power, both pointing us towards his salvation that he has on offer for us. These are wonderful stories that point us to Jesus. Uh, allow them to do this in your life today too. Uh, let, let, me, let me pray um, just to sum up this bit of the service. Father, we want to thank you so much for, uh, for these, these stories, these encounters that these uh, men had with Jesus and thank you for what they tell us about you, about your heart for us, about the nature of faith and the trust that we should put in you. Lord Jesus, we want to put our trust in you today. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.